0: Episode 134 of the Read to Lead podcast is brought to you by FreshBooks and they're back with a month of unrestricted use, totally free, no credit card needed for the trial. Claim your free month now at freshbooks.com slash read to lead and enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section.
1: More helpful than judgment of this is good or this is bad is more of a sense of, okay, what's working? What's working well? Is this doing what I hope it does? How can I make it better?
0: Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever-important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable feedback. Back from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors, and now here's Jeff. Hi, I'm so glad you're here. It's the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth, where we talk about leadership and also personal development, productivity, career, business, marketing, sales, entrepreneurship, and a lot more. In a moment, you and I are going to be joined by Amy Whitaker. She's the author of Art Thinking: How to Carve Out Creative Space. In a world of schedules, budgets, and bosses. And I plan to ask Amy about the benefits of and simple habits for finding space for open ended creative thinking, the distinction between judging and discerning when it comes to your own work, practical ways to create financial security when pursuing side projects, and much, much more. Speaking of side projects, if you're pursuing some of your own, I don't suggest you do it without cloud accounting software. FreshBooks. I've been using it since 2009 to create all of my invoices, and I've never even considered another option, mainly because with FreshBooks, I get paid fast. My clients can pay online. I can see whether or not they've looked at an invoice. I can set it up to automatically send late payment reminders. In fact, in a lot of ways, FreshBooks does my accounting thinking for me. And I don't know about you, but I kind of like that. They have a special free month-long trial going on right now. Just because you listen to this show, you don't even need a credit card to take advantage of the trial. And again, it's a 30-day totally free trial. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com slash read to lead. It's a special URL they've set up just for us. Freshbooks.com slash read to lead. And enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us?" section. Again, that's freshbooks.com slash read to lead. Amy Whitaker is a writer, artist, and teacher working at the intersections of creativity, business, and everyday life. She holds an MBA from Yale and an MFA in painting from the Slade School of Fine Art at University College London. She is currently an entrepreneur-in-residence at the New Museum Incubator and a principal in the curriculum development company Eggshell Knight. She's also joined the faculty at NYU Steinhardt as an assistant professor in visual arts administration. And she's the author of the brand new book, Art Thinking, How to Carve Out Creative Space in a World of Schedules, Budgets, and Bosses. Amy, it's a pleasure. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast.
1: Thanks so much, Jeff. I'm really happy to be here.
0: Well, I wanted to start off by asking you, so how was the college reunion? (laughs)
1: Uh, It it was great. Uh, Apart from losing my voice a little bit, having to shout above the din of music of the early 90s, it was fantastic. (laughs) Thanks for asking.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, your book is one that, and I mean this as a compliment, was difficult for me to get through. By that, I mean that as I would read a paragraph, my mind would go off in thinking about how that applies to me. And what I'm doing in in my world and my wife uh, who was in and out all weekend long? Kept joking with me because she'd be gone for several hours and come back and say, "Okay, what page are you on now?" And I'd <laughs> only be like ten or twelve pages beyond what I was when she left. <laughs> and, and and so what I'm what I'm ultimately saying is, uh, uh, you know, tongue in cheek in, in in one sense, but 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 totally accurate in another. Is art thinking makes you think? Uh, I think more so than just about any book I've read in recent memory.
1: Uh, well, that's really nice of you to say. I love to write and I love to read, but I'm actually a very slow reader myself mm. and um, I'm sure I would have if I hadn't written the book I would have been reading it even more slowly <laughs> um, but thank you for the compliment
0: well uh, define if you would Amy art in in this context and and share from your vantage point what the book is is designed to, to try and help us do
1: right so I have a background in the arts the the way that we all kind of understand them. I'm trained as a painter, and I used to work in art museums. So when you say art, I think a lot of people think about anything from children's drawings and hand puppets to, you know, Monet or Picasso, or why is that bucket in the corner of the museum and what does it mean? (laughs) Why is that a a piece of installation art? And in the book, the definition of art has more of a Swiss army knife character. Mm. So the idea of art in the book is that if you're making a work of art in any field, you're not going from a known point A to a known point B, you're inventing point B. Mm. So there are lots of places in life where it's really good to go from A to B. You're driving to the store, you're operating on someone, you're solving for a crisis, you're just getting things done, and that's fantastic. Um, But all of us have this capacity to to move forward in an open-ended way where we're not quite yet sure what point B is when we start out at point A. And not to be academic about it, that uh, definition comes from this essay called uh, The Origin of the Work of Art mm. by the philosopher Heidegger. Um, I work as a professor, and I find this essay extremely hard to read. Uh, <laughs> he he kept rewriting it his whole life, and, and I always like to think that he stopped on it because he died, uh, because mm. defining art is extremely hard to do. Um, but what he says is that a, a work of art is something new in the world that changes the world to allow itself to exist. So I think anyone who's brought a new product to market or made a brave personal life decision, or even started a family kind of has that understanding of kind of moving forward in a way that changes the world around you, that kind of creates a wake that um, creates your sense of the new normal. And so um, in a business context, All the things that we're doing when we're executing, when we're going from A to B, are based on forms of invention that happened before. Hmm. So the idea of the book is, is how to make space, how to carve out space for invention and for thinking about things that might be possible or might fail while we're in the midst of all the other things we're already doing.
0: And in the seven chapters of the book, uh, Amy lays out seven different approaches to more effectively carving out that space. So let's let's uh, hone in on the first one for just a moment, if we can, Amy, from a wide angle. I thought Thomas Fogarty's story that you shared illustrates this so effectively.
1: Right. I really love Thomas Fogarty's story. So Thomas Fogarty is a medical device inventor and a cardiac surgeon who is based in Northern California. And I I met him a few years ago, and um, Thomas Fogarty and I spent a few hours talking over a box of salted caramels in his office. And Fogarty uh, was born in Ohio. He was a self-professed juvenile delinquent who had to be either busy or supervised. His his father had... um, uh, mental health issues and had been taken away to an as- asylum uh, when Fogarty was very young. And his mother worked a- in a dry cleaner shop, um, what he called a sweatshop in every sense of the word. And so um, he was given a job in a hospital. And the main reason he went to work in a hospital was that they were exempt from child labor laws and Fogarty was only 13. So I asked him what he you know, what he was doing that that was juvenile delinquent like. And he said that he used to pour wax behind the radiator and the fire department would have to come. Or quite literally, he would jump out of the window of the school to go fly fishing and they would be worried and they would call his mother. And mm. so when he went to work at this hospital, he had a mentor named Jack Cranley, who had 10 kids and made Fogarty the 11th. Mm. And I find it amazing. I mean, Fogarty was not very old and he saw a couple of autopsies. He was just insatiably curious and soaked everything up. And he was was always kind of starting to invent things in his spare time. And uh, by the time he was about 15, he was what's called a scrub technician in the operating room. Wow. So he would you know, kind of be there to do anything that was needed, occasionally hand instruments to the surgeon. And a lot of the procedures in Dr. Cranley's operating room were the removal of blood clots. Not to be gruesome, but at the time, um, the kind of prevailing belief in that kind of surgery was the bigger the incision, the better the surgeon. And they would <laughs> they would open up the entire length of, of someone's artery to take out a clot. And many people died. Many people came in for secondary operations that were amputations. Mm-hmm. And Fogarty said, you know, it doesn't take a lot to, to realize there's something better than this. So he started tinkering um, in the attic where, he, where his, his room was, and he, he figured out that instead of making these huge incisions, you can make a tiny incision, and you could insert a piece of tubing that had a collapsed balloon on the end of it, insert it past a clot, and then rake the clot back out. And so uh, he was working with a piece of urethral catheter, um, which is made out of vinyl, and the pinky finger of a number five latex glove. And this is the kind of late 50s, early 60s. There was no glue that would make latex and vinyl adhere. So what he did was he tied them together with the fly fishing knots that he learned while cutting school, Hmm. while he was in his juvenile delinquent phase. (laughs) So the takeaway there, I guess I'm telling the story kind of long form, but um, although there's more to it in the book, Hmm. um, the takeaway there is that the... Breakthroughs in your working life might come from an unexpected part of your leisure life or even your delinquent life (laughs) in the case of Fogarty and that um, zooming out to see the wide angle is taking an environment view as opposed to an object view. So, economics encourages an object view. You know, you're making a widget, you're delivering value, you're producing a product of any kind. And the environment view is a way of giving yourself permission to have. Um, a systems view, to, to see all the parts as related, and then to be able to carve out time within that to work on things you really care about.
0: Well, the fascinating story, and I appreciate you, you relating it here, because I think it's one that, that needs to be heard, because it serves as such a great example uh, of this concept. So contrast, if you would, Amy, the wide angle with uh, what you cover in Chapter 2, the in-the-weeds approach. Why is it important that we focus on the process versus the outcome?
1: The In the Weeds idea, which is the second mindset of the art thinking framework, is about this idea that, you know, it's great to zoom out and see the whole picture, but secondarily, there's this cognitive bias that's the difference between a before picture and an after picture. So when you sit down to work on a creative project you're in the weeds. It's very messy. You have no idea if it's going to succeed or fail yet. And invariably, you see everyone else's projects at the point of completion. So, you're comparing your messy work in progress to someone else's like beautiful, polished, finished version. Mm-hmm. So, one of the stories in the book is about Harper Lee, uh, the author of To Kill a Mockingbird. And we think of that as a Pulitzer Prize winning book that sold 40 million copies and became a Beautiful film of Gregory Peck, and really a touchstone for an entire epic, if you will, uh, in the U.S. history of race relations, certainly, and in you know most people's middle school education. Mm. And uh, when she wrote that book, you know she she was a kind of tomboy, quiet living in New York. She had dropped out of both college and law school to move to the city, and she was working as a reservations agent for the airlines. The main way she was able to write that book is that some friends of hers gave her a year's salary as a Christmas present. (laughs) Just to kind of remembering that everyone else's life might look a little bit shiny from the outside, but the way I always describe it in my own life is that feeling that either you're Paddling furiously beneath the surface, or you're like, "Am I the only person who the bumper of their car is held on with duct tape right now?" Because <laughs> everyone else kind of sees it far away when it's a, a kind of photoshopped finish.
0: Well, related to that, Amy, talk if you would about uh, the difference between, uh, and the words you used. I love how they illustrate this: judging and discerning in this context. What's the difference?
1: Right, right, so so I think this probably comes about from my own experience uh, as a painter because it 's very vulnerable to paint, and sometimes I remember especially when I was learning to paint in oils, I was like, this is interesting i 'm painting this still life there 's this big object in the still life that 's shiny, dark green, and currently it is peptobismal pink i 'm going to have to work on that, so you know I think anyone who's um, you know, has some sort of achieving past. Mm. And many people I'm lucky to know in a business context certainly do, admirably so. You know, you're, you're able to kind of push yourself um, to to achieve things. And part of that is is having some healthy sense of judgment of wanting something to be excellent. And that's great. But I think when work is in progress... Um, What's more helpful than judgment of this is good or this is bad is more of a sense of, okay, what's working? What's working well? Is this doing what I hope it does? How can I make it better? So refining toward the question that you start the process with or the project with, Mm -hmm. that's how you learn to layer onto the, you know, Pepto-Bismol pink object to make it green or to paint it over and start again. Um, But it, it gives you a framework for going all in. And then being able to kind of refine from there.
0: Mm. Well, in business and those of us who are motivated people, (laughs) (laughs) uh, we hear a lot about, you know, smart targets or smart goals and talk a little bit about that and your thoughts on that and whether or not there are circumstances, Amy, where that can be be limiting and connected to that, how we might use, say, questions instead to get Mm -hmm. where we want to go.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So again, smart targets absolutely have their place um, when you need to do something that's specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time bound. And I think I also hear people in business talk about big, hairy, audacious goals (laughs) as well, when you kind of throw the ball really far down the field and see if you can run to catch it um, as a way of getting farther than you might otherwise. So I think that smart targets can be really helpful for intermediary goals or for process-based goals. Um, But the the way in which they're at odds with the art thinking framework is that if you're inventing point B, you don't have a specific, measurable, realistic, (laughs) time-bound goal. Um, So picture something like the Wright brothers figuring out whether flight is possible or Roger Bannister hoping to run the first sub-four-minute mile Um, you're dealing with a frontier of possibility in a kind of beautiful and honorable way. And so you can definitely use a smart target to make space for the habits that let you move forward. You can say, I'm moving to Kitty Hawk for the summer. I'm consulting these archives about these documents and the history of attempts at flight. In the case of Roger Bannister, uh, whose story is also in the book, you can use a smart target to decide to train on your lunch break from being a resident in neurology at a London hospital. So you can use them to define research goals and to develop a ritual or a practice around something. But the, the term in the book is what's called a lighthouse question, Mm -hmm. that if you're inventing point B, you're leading from a question, not to a solution. And it's a slightly subtle distinction. Um, but I think it's important because what it allows you to do is it allows you to rake progress forward as opposed to shoot like an arrow at a target. So you often end up with this sort of larger wave of progress or, or with, um, you know, more ability to change something that had originally seemed intractable.
0: And how much more powerful is a wave than an arrow, right? <laughs> right,
1: exactly. It's a kind of humbling to think about that.
0: <laughs> and I thought the uh, the Roger Bannister example too was a great illustration to debunk this this idea of the lone genius. I mean, he had so much help in accomplishing that goal.
1: Right. No, I think that's such a good point. I think. The lone genius is certainly a broad cultural archetype, but I, I think it's very comparable to how we think of artists. We think of this mythic genius artist, this Leonardo da Vinci character, uh, we love to to think of this person as a hermit who's doing something amazing in a vacuum. And of course, there are many other people. So in the case of of Roger Bannister, he was running with two men, uh, Chris Brasher and Chris Chataway. And the three of them not only trained together and were close friends, but they also paced Bannister in his successful mile attempt. Uh, They uh, each took the first couple of laps. Um, so that he wouldn't go out too fast and then Bannister ran the last lap on his own and and i i find it very beautiful you might even hear me get a non college reunion lump in my throat talking about <laughs> it because it like we know bannister is the person who broke that record but the first thing he did after he collapsed at the finish was to look for them but the other thing in in uh, bannister's case is that you know Brasher and chataway were remarkable people in their own right, as were the other friends of theirs who collaborated in in that running of the first sub four-minute mile. Uh, one of them was a founder of the London Marathon, or co-founder of the London Marathon, and the other was a world record holder um, in slightly longer distances. And two of their other friends who, in, in the mile attempt, um, set up the ability to give Bannister split time, so to tell him his half-lap half time, and who invited the only journalist who was present were these twins, the McQuarters, and they're actually the founding editors of the Guinness Book of World Records. So the, the story kind of has like a beautiful wholeness mm. to it with a lot of uh, different people, kind of an ensemble.
0: Very much so. And, it, and it, as I read your version of the story, I couldn't help but get a lump in my throat. And that's one of those... Those moments where my mind went off, wondering about that moment in time and what it was like for the people that were there, and my imagination just ran. And I realized twenty minutes later, I'm still on the same page. <laughs> right, right,
1: absolutely. No, it it um it, it really touches me because you know Bannister ran at a time that you could be a gentleman amateur, that mm-hmm. you could do other things in your life and still um, try to excel in in one specific. Area, And I've always loved that he thought that his greatest contributions in life were to his family and to neurology. I have a friend from when I lived in London who uh, was in school with Bannister's children and did say that Bannister used to always win the father-son race at their school, which I thought was a bit unfair. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, but no, I agree. It it, um, it reminds me of this kind of other era. And, you know, just on that point you're raising about the distinction between a goal and a question, it, you know, running a sub four minute mile sounds like a goal. Mm-hmm. And in many ways it is. But at the time that Bannister was doing it, the world record had stood at roughly uh, four minutes and I think 1.9 or so seconds. And People thought it was a kind of law of nature. There was a belief that something was impossible, and some of that was historically specific. Um, you probably know of the runner Louis Zamborini, who the book Unbroken is about. I think Zamborini might have run a sub-four-minute mile if you know World War II had not um, curtailed Olympic competition and he had not been uh, taken as a prisoner of war, obviously, But at the same time, I think what's so beautiful about Bannister's story is that he proved something was possible, and then he only held the record for 45 days (laughs) that someone, you know, bested his effort that soon after. And maybe they would have done that anyway. But to me, it's always appeared to be the difference between um, summoning the courage of imagination and then doing something and seeing that something is demonstrated and proven possible and then doing it incrementally better.
0: Mm -hmm. And what is it like? Thirteen hundred people now that have done that,
1: right? Exactly, exactly. If um if anyone's trying to beat the world record, I think it's like a it's well under. It's something like a three forty six. So <laughs>
0: I'm
1: I'm I'm devoting myself to other art thinking questions. But I, I commend anyone who's trying to do that.
0: Absolutely, it's uh, if I can run a ten minute mile, that's it. that's that's, that's right. doing pretty well.
1: I know it's kind of like a it's like a deli weight when you're buying turkey and the price is listed by the quarter pound. <laughs> like I, I I could maybe do that as a half mile pace, right? If right. So I were really really trying.
0: Well, when it comes time, Amy, or when it comes to, I should say, carving out creative space, pursuing side projects, what are some practical ways to create financial security along the way?
1: Right, right. So when you talk about creative projects in a business context or in the context of any of us who are economic actors, because that's the way our society is structured as a market economy, you're really talking about risk management and portfolio management. So one of the ways I think about it is kind of a personal story, which is that After I got a business degree and then got an MFA in painting, I was experimenting with these different ways of supporting myself. I worked for a couple of years full time in an investment management firm. And then I was in a freelance phase and I I sort of looked around one day and I I was actually in the car talking to my brother and I was like, you know, I have such interesting projects. I I love what I'm doing, but my life feels kind of like it's all throw pillows and no couch. Like I, I actually need a very large beige structure underneath this. Like my own need for stability or security is not not being met, much as I love what I'm doing. And so one of the ideas in the book is looking at your life as a kind of couch and throw pillows. <laughs> and I, I realize that might not have universal appeal um, from a decorating <laughs> standpoint. <laughs> so I, I admire anyone's minimalist or modernist sensibility, but just for the sake <laughs> of argument. You know, you, you have to decide what gives you the stability to be truly creatively free. I always think of this uh, Flaubert quotation that, you know, one must be conservative in one's life in order to be wildly experimental in one's practice. Um, or, or that you need a certain level of stability in order to have a truly avant-garde, um, kind of artistic approach. And so. What I would say is that, you know, it's different for every person, but you need some some knowledge that you are supporting the kind of basic infrastructure of your life. And then from there, um, to be able to take on projects um, in different ways in order to, like, allow yourself essentially to be an investor in your own work. Mm. So, it's really figuring out you know, how much you can afford to invest in time and energy, how much you can afford to lose. Um, one of the really s- specific tools, maybe two specific tools from the book, one is this idea of studio time. So looking at your schedule, asking yourself, how much time do I really have? Is it my morning commute? Is there a meeting I have to go to every week that I could make biweekly? And then using that time to work on on a project. So setting a lighthouse question, setting a research goal, and just devoting that time a little bit like the storied kind of 20% time projects uh, that led to Gmail at Google. Um, And another tool is what I would call defining a grace period. So taking a problem that's really pressing, you know, I have to figure out a new job. I have to figure out how to solve for this client relationship or this product that's in development. Um, And then asking yourself when you actually really have to get it done, Mm. Um, because many things manifest as urgent that... Are, are urgent, but not for a couple of hours or a couple of days or a couple of weeks and giving yourself a little bit of slack, productive slack, so that you can uh, approach what you're doing with a little bit more spaciousness and have a little bit of time to kind of explore different avenues.
0: Well, you've mentioned some examples of individuals that have put these concepts into practice. We talked about the Wright Brothers. We talked about Bannister. In addition to Google, uh, are there other companies that you can share about who've used or embodied uh, the principles of of art thinking?
1: Definitely. A couple of the smaller companies or newer companies that are in the book, uh, one is called The Atavist. It's a publishing platform. And the particular way in which The Atavist um, embodies art thinking is that, you know, it started as a side project among journalists who, you know, met weekly or monthly for a beer just to talk about what they hoped was possible for their field. Um, and then from that, it developed over time while they still had day jobs into um, a, a company that um, both Produces long form creative journalism and also has built a technological platform that other people use to manage their own kind of stories uh, and content, if you will. Um, another company that's in the book, um, and I, I know they're kind of ubiquitous in uh, business design creativity circles at the moment, is the eyeglasses firm, Warby Parker. Mm. And one of the reasons I think Warby Parker embodies art thinking is that. They designed the business model itself as a creative practice. Mm. So um, one of the ideas in the book is that you, you can think of two different layers of creativity. You can think of writing the letter and designing the envelope. And writing the letter is the work itself, and designing the envelope is creating the context mm. or the business model in which that work can happen. And in, in Warby Parker's case, they analyzed the economics of the eyeglasses industry and found that it was pretty tightly controlled by one or two um, quite vertically integrated companies. Yes, it and is. And so they right, <laughs> or, yeah, or so I've read. Uh, so. They uh, figured out a price point at which they could create quality eyeglasses and also give a pair away uh, for free. And that was specific to them. They, the, the founding story of Orby Parker was that um, they were all classmates. At Wharton, getting their MBAs, and one of them left a pair of glasses in the seat back pocket of an airplane and was commiserating, and he was commiserating with his friend Neil Blumenthal, who had run an eyeglasses nonprofit before going to business school. And Neil said to him, "You know, I hate to tell you, but your glasses don't need to cost seven hundred dollars. Like this shouldn't <laughs> this should not be so devastating that you left them on an airplane?" Because Neil had seen the eyeglasses all come off the same assembly lines in the right. same factories, and so part of how they designed their business model was not just in terms of their own supply chain, which is quite artful and originally not having brick and mortar locations, but uh, running a mail order business so that it was much less expensive. But then also when they went to donate eyeglasses in the developing world, instead of just giving them to people where they would disrupt a local economy where people are already selling eyeglasses, they partnered with local nonprofits that then taught mostly women, but there's a lot of study of the transformational power of putting money specifically into women's hands in the developing world. Mm-hmm. And so they trained women to sell eyeglasses at agreed upon local market rates. So to me, there's a sense of possibility of how can we make this better? Wouldn't it be cool if, mm-hmm. you know, how can we solve these problems and and kind of do do work for good using the tools of business?
0: Well, I want to point out, Amy is in New York, and I think it's incredible that we got as far as we did before we heard the first horn honking. (laughs) I know.
1: It's it's the most predictable part of Murphy's Law. You have to be on an important call on the sidewalk, and there will be a jackhammer, an ambulance, a siren, and someone having a personal argument (laughs) within about five feet.
0: (laughs) Well, I do, uh, in the time we have left, Amy, uh, if you don't mind, want to ask a couple of questions not directly related to the book. Uh, But before I do that, is there anything else uh, from the book you want to make sure we know? Because we really did just only scratch the surface.
1: The only thing I would mention is, you know, the book really starts in the mindsets of art and then goes into more of the tools of business. And one of my favorite stories, among many others, of course, in the book is in the last chapter. And it's about a place in Memphis called Crosstown, where an artist and an art historian looked up at an empty building that was 1.5 million square feet. And had been shuttered since I was in college (laughs) and uh, asked themselves, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we did something with this? And it's a story of how they kind of brought that almost outlandish idea into reality So just in honor of your home state, Jeff, I just want to name check that story.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, we're all about books here, obviously. And uh, I like to ask everyone who comes on the show to name a couple of books that have had an impact on you. Maybe books that you refer back to again and again that uh, informs uh, sort of your thought process and thinking today. Absolutely,
1: um, I think you're you're about to cut me off. I'm going to tell you too many probably. <laughs> um, so, one of the books I read kind of early on, around the time I was starting to work on this book, is one many of your readers probably know already, which is called "The Ten Commandments of Business Failure" by mm. Donald Keogh, Um who was uh, the longtime uh, chairman president of the uh, Coca Cola Company. Mm. And I I really love it because it it's such a human and humble and hilarious description of the art of management. He was asked to write a book about how to succeed in business. And he basically said, I, I'd rather not do that, but I'll tell you what you could do wrong instead. <laughs> so I, I really, I, I love the, the tone and the ideas in that book. A lot of the books that stay with me and that I revisit the most often are books about writing mm. because I think writing is such a proxy for kind of moving forward creatively in life. The, the ones I love the most are On Writing Well um, by uh, William Zinser. Mm and Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott, and um, The Writing Life by Annie Dillard. Um, There's also the beautiful Murakami book, um, What I Think About When I Think About Running, because I'm a a runner, uh, not in any sort of banister way, (laughs) uh, (laughs) in a a participatory process-based way. (laughs) And uh, I do think that running has a lot in common with creative process, because there's a way in which you have to put a foot down every single time. There are certain things in business or life that scale and others where you really have to do each part of it. And so it's a nice kind of reminder of of those places where you have to do each part of it, but progress also happens. You know, sometimes the wheels of progress grind slowly uh, and incrementally, um, and then they kind of unfold.
0: Well, good suggestions. Um, I don't know that any of those have ever been mentioned uh, specifically, before so so we've got some new new ones to dive into. Thank you for that. Uh, I know you do your fair share of of public speaking. You're in front of people quite often, and I'd be curious to know, uh, Amy, if you'd be willing to share any tips you would have for helping us be better at at doing that, delivering an impactful and, and memorable public talk.
1: You know, it's funny. I actually cribbed a lot of pointers from your other podcast speakers. Oh, so, yeah. I'm, um, the main thing I think about in public speaking. Well, there are a few things. Um, one is a lot of the public speaking I do is teaching. And yeah. um, I love to teach. And I, I think a lot about the emotional transaction that happens when you're teaching or speaking, that you're trying to be generous or to give something to people. And if I stay in that headspace, um, then I it feels expansive and generous. Mm. And I, I feel that a lot of the time, when you're speaking and you know, I realize I'm in my New York apartment on my noise canceling headphones. <laughs> but I, I feel a lot of times there's a, an emotional transaction, kind of what's what would happen if we didn't speak the same language. Mm. Um, which is often um and I, I don't mean to sound corny, but it's a it's a transaction of love. It's mm. a very human transaction. And so I try to stay in that space. Um I try to think that way, because anytime you're speaking in public, it's very easy to think about the people in the back with the clipboards and the lab coats who are evaluating you. <laughs> and that I, certainly for me, that freezes me up and does not call out my best self or speaker mm-hmm. Um, I also am very lucky to have an aunt who's a retired professor of communication studies. And first of all, she constantly plays in my head and reminds me to speak more slowly. But the more you teach, and this probably applies to many parts of management or public speaking, um, the more space you allow in the room and the more you reveal layers of yourself and the vulnerability of teaching. And my aunt... Is an ab- she's retired now. She's an absolute master at uh, holding strength in front of a room of people in an entirely vulnerable way. Um, and I, I've heard one of your other speakers say that too about standing on stage and and owning the stage. And it, it's similar to that.
0: Mm, good advice. Thank you for that. Well, this is maybe a difficult question to answer since the book is is just out. But I want to ask, what's next? for you? What are you and your team working on that's got you excited?
1: Um, Well, you're right. I'm really excited about this book and I'm really excited for the conversations that follow from it directly. I think um, my own next projects are moving in a couple of different tracks. Mm -hmm. Uh, One track is that I love for more people to understand business and feel invited to participate in that conversation. So I'm working on some projects, teaching business to artists and designers and creating resources You know, for anyone who's in a corporation, even who wants to know how financial statements work, um, for it, it not to be mystified to understand the building blocks of the market. And then I think some of the other work grows more from um, this book directly about um, how people maintain endurance, how people start, kind of exactly the question you just asked me, Mm. how people start new projects after finishing projects. And I've always really admired people in the arts who have achieved a certain level of fame and success who then have the courage to go back to the drawing board and risk failure and try new things. So I think I've been looking at some of those stories, too.
0: Well, the book, again, is Art Thinking, How to Carve Out Creative Space in a World of Schedules, Budgets, and Bosses. It may take you a while to get through it, but <laughs> that's only because it gets you thinking. That's a good thing. Amy, thank you so much for your time and, and for sharing it so so generously with us.
1: No, it's really my pleasure. Thanks so much, Jeff, for having me on.
0: I encourage you to check out Art Thinking. We've put a link to Amy's new book, as well as the other books and resources she mentioned on our show notes page. You can find everything about this episode you need to know at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 134 for episode 134. I want to say a special thanks to Atik Ahmad, who in iTunes left us a five-star rating and written review saying it's great to listen to first thing in the morning. Thank you, Atik. If you're working hard to carve out creative space and along the way you need a cloud accounting software solution, remember FreshBooks.com and their month-long free trial just for you. FreshBooks.com slash read to lead. Join us next week when we welcome back Carrie Oberbrunner to the show to talk about 18 different streams of income that can be derived from writing. A single book, it is an episode you do not want to miss. Well, that does it for this week, and I look forward to seeing you, as always, next time for the next episode of the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead.